fun. Hey, welcome everybody. We're so glad that you are here. Um, I just wanted to start off. You guys, re- uh, we haven't released the kids yet. That's so good. Don't go. Let's bring that slide up, Rayton. All right. Because this is a church full of engineers and finance people and detail-oriented folks, which I am not one of those, we like to plan ahead. So here's the save the date. Backyard VBS, we've formally called this Backyard Kids Club, BKC. We've recognized that's a little confusing, especially when you're inviting someone who's familiar with the concept of Vacation Bible School. So we're going to just rename it Backyard VBS. Same thing we did last year. We're just going to have a new title on it. June 5th through 9th. So write that down. Get prepared for that. Music team, I know you guys are just chomping at the bit. Sometime early April, we'll have signups and we'll start doing that. And um, we'll have more information. But concept-wise, this is celebrating games of all sorts. Twists and turns. You guys like board games? Other games? So ultimately, kids are going to learn in this Vacation Bible School, Backyard VBS, that trusting Jesus changes the game of life entirely. So that's my announcement. Kids, you can go ahead and go to your classes. We'll have another slide here. There we go. So we have a great kids ministry here. If you're new with us, you can feel free, um, 0 through 12, to send them back into our kids ministry area. However, you can also feel free to keep them here with you. Um, if you are new and you'd like more help, there's a kid's sign in the lobby. You can check him in there. And I'm going to go ahead and get started. For all of us in here that are going to stay, you can go ahead and open your Bible. We're going to be in the book of James, and we'll be in chapter 2. So chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 14. That's if, you're, if you've got the house Bible in front of you. 1,012 is the page number. So we're in the book of James, as you all know. We already read in James 1.22 the concept of being doers of the word and not just hearers. So in today's passage, James is going to take that concept and use some pretty provocative language to get our attention. And he's going to expand on that concept and look at the idea that faith without deeds or works, is a dead faith. If you just hear the word and you don't do anything, your faith is dead. But I think that there's a danger I just wanted to start off with here, because I grew up in church. I grew up in church. If you are new here and you don't know me, my name's Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. I grew up in church. And for those of us who were kids in church, been in church for a long time, There's a special threat, I think, when it comes to faith and deeds, because I've used the word inoculated. You know how sometimes a vaccine can inoculate you against the real thing? You get a weaker version of it, and your body learns. Sometimes, and I think this is often, I'm speaking to you guys, because you're right in the midst of this. You've heard these words your whole life. You've heard the gospel, but sometimes it doesn't sink 
deep down into your soul. And what you instead get is the jargon. You get the right words. You get the language. You know what to say, when to say it, when it's inappropriate to say something, when it's appropriate. You know the behavioral expectations of the community here. You know that stuff inside out intimately, and it's so easy to just play the part. The problem with playing the part is, well, if you're like me, you're probably going to want a list once I start talking about works or deeds. How many good works do I need to do to prove that my faith is real? I just kind of want to leave you guys with that, because I'm not going to give you a list today. I think that's actually, it can be dangerous, especially for those of us who... um, are somewhat disciplined in our lives and have the ability to work hard and get good grades and so on and so forth. If you're a successful person, there's a special temptation towards this. We don't want to get this wrong. Deeds or works do not save a person. Faith without deeds is dead faith. It cannot save you. But it's not that our deeds save us, it's our faith that leads to deeds. That's the context of our passage today. So let's read James. Let's just start in verse, so James 2, start in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We pray. Holy Spirit, we need you today. Jesus promised to help her. He was here in body, and then he ascended into heaven, and in front of your disciples, at the end there, he said, a helper would come. You will receive power when that helper comes. And the Holy Spirit, some days later, descended on those disciples, and it changed them. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us this morning. Give us that power. Give us that insight. Give us the understanding to understand what James is talking about when he says these words, because these are pretty strong statements. Help us to understand what we need to do. Help us to understand how to believe. God, help us to understand what living faith looks like. So we just pray you'd enlighten us today through this text. And God, if, you, if there's anything that I'm about to say that just is not of you, or that it misinterprets this, I pray that you would silence that out of my mouth because I feel this is weighty. So Spirit, guide us, lead us. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We're so grateful for what you've made us into. Thank you that we have an eternal inheritance to look forward to. We're grateful for that. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have faith and works. This is how most people think of it, faith versus works. They put a dividing line, but, but you know what? James isn't comparing faith and works. He's not putting faith on one side and works on the other. Thanks, Zeke. That was bothering me. I don't know if anybody else heard that. <laughs> I was just trying to ignore it, but it was in the back of my mind and messing with me. I have faith that Zeke will have good works of turning that amp off. All right. <laughs> Good. So anyway, James is not putting faith on one side and works on the other in this passage. We get mixed up about this. What he's actually referring to is two kinds of faith. He's talking about a living faith versus a dead faith. That's what he's talking about. And here's the criteria. A living faith has works. A dead faith has no works. 
But what's interesting about this passage where he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And there's some religious systems that really do rely on those works for their righteousness, for their justification, for their salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses would be one. Mormonism would be another. Catholicism is another. There's others. But what tends to happen is well-meaning people want to know the list. Just give me a list of what I need to do that proves that my faith is a living faith. It's got works associated with it, right? And I just spent some time even this week. I I spent hours actually combing through Catholic.com, Catholic Answers, just seeking to understand. In my opinion, if you just attack a group or attack a person, you say, that's wrong, and you're wrong, and you don't actually sit down and seek to, to understand where they're at. Steel man their argument, and then see if the Bible somehow will tear that down. I don't know that you have intellectual ground to stand on. That's, that's at least how I want to operate. But I actually spent some time specifically reading what they had to say about this passage, and there was a lot. So we Protestants, we tend to refer to the solas. The Reformers were real big on those, sola, fide, faith alone. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. And I read multiple articles on Catholic.com making a big deal about faith alone not being able to save you. They quote a verse from our passage today as a primary proof and something that they say refutes sola fide and that Martin Luther got that wrong. And I, you know, I want to be open to that. So for me, I go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about it? And this is the passage. This is the key passage. James 2.24, this is 10 verses after this, we'll get to it. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So I guess that's it. A person is justified by what he does and not faith alone. But that, to me, sounds opposite of what Paul says in Romans 4 when he says we're justified by faith and not by what we do. And you know what's interesting? It's made even worse when you contrast James 2 and Romans 4 because Paul... Paul and James both use the same word, justification, and they both use the same person as their exhibit A to prove their point. So Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham was justified by faith and counted righteous in Genesis 15 before he had done any works. And so someone from another religious persuasion might respond You know what? In James 2, it says that Abraham was justified by works. But it's later in Genesis, in chapter 22, when he offers his son Isaac on the altar. And so people get in fights. Some will be on one side. Some will be on the other side. If it's on the internet, it gets really nasty as trolls swoop in. Don't argue on the internet. It just doesn't work. So you might end up with Catholics on one side and Protestants on the other. Throughout history, that's even gotten violent. That's wrong. That's bad. That is sin. That is evil. You know, what happens today is the atheist will swoop in and go, you're both wrong, obviously, because your Bible contradicts itself, and then the atheist says, I won. 
right? <laughs> we get in fights. I don't want to get in a fight today. I don't want to get in a fight today. But when you look at what Protestants here, some of you would be Protestants, really descended from that tradition, versus maybe what the Catholic um, catechism would clearly say. They say you can use, lose your justification by committing certain sins. And you have to go back and do some works because your justification is lost at that point. And there's actually rites that you have to go do. You have to go through rites of reconciliation and you go through a series of confession. After, you confession. after your confession, the priest will give you a penance, something to do. And this is straight out of their wording, which may consist of prayer and offering works of mercy or sacrifices. And these works help to join us with Christ who died for us. And I find it very fascinating that who died for us is there. Because we would look at that and we say, no, there's no work that has to be done in addition to the death of Christ to join me with Christ. So on one side of that argument, someone would say, you can be joined with Christ once through the cross and then you can be unjoined through your action. And you're going to have to do more actions or deeds to be rejoined. Otherwise, you're no longer justified. And this matters so much. We have to get this right. Because I believe the scripture says something different than that. And we have to get this right. James, I believe in this passage, is not saying, he can't be saying, that works have to be added to faith. Because I believe if you argue that way, the death of Christ on the cross has no power at all. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't something that saves us once only to, to reset via whatever actions we then have after the fact, and then we're left finishing our own faith. It's in violation of the song we just sang, actually, if you think about it. If there was anything else after you step through the door of the gospel that you have to add to your justification, you end up right back to where you were before, enslaved to the very law you couldn't fulfill in the first place. You can't fulfill that law. Your righteousness is not enough. You need a righteousness apart from your own, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So James isn't and can't be saying that works are part of our salvation. So we have to figure out, how do we make sense of this? Well, first of all, we have to look at the context. We have to look at the context. And I'm not going to go to some council necessarily to read a catechism or read a thought of Martin Luther or some other person. I just want to know what the Bible has to say about it. For me, that's what's important, ultimately. Those other things can be helpful for understanding. But I'm not particularly interested in what the Council of Trent has to say about sola fide and its rejection of it. Or even necessarily the, the meaning of sola fide in the first place. We have to go to the Word. What does the Word Say, I think the context here in James 2 and even the use of Abraham as our exhibit A for the argument support being saved by faith and not by works. So I think first, though, we have to look at the definition of some words. You know, saved can take on multiple contexts in the Bible. The same word can be used. Saved in that I've been made right, reconciled with God. Saved is also used in Philippians where Paul says this has, uh, he basically talks about being saved as being delivered from prison. 
using the same word. The word can mean something different. So let's look at this word, justified. Basically, it means made righteous. In the theological sense of this word, it means I've been made right with God. My sins have been taken away. I have the righteousness of Christ. I'm clean. I'm free from the wrath of God. I'm free from punishment because I've been made righteous. I'm justified. That's what it means. But sometimes it can mean something else. In the Bible, the same exact Greek word. Here's a place where that is in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus is saying a bunch of truths that the people around him are agreeing with. And he's speaking specifically about John the Baptist. And he's talking about some things that John the Baptist said and did. And now he's saying some things about what they're saying about Jesus himself. He says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton, and a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That word justified there, wisdom is not, in a theological sense, being made right with God, sins forgiven, justified, reconciled, free of future punishment, headed for an eternity in heaven. That is not the definition of this. This justified is a different thing. I liked how Eugene Peterson paraphrased this when he wrote in the message. He said, opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof is in the pudding. <laughs> but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. <laughs> you got to eat the pudding to know that the pudding is good. That make sense? Right? Okay. <laughs> Two types of justification. One, justified, you've been made righteous. The other one is you've been vindicated or proved right. You ate the pudding and proved that it was good. Your eating of the pudding didn't make the pudding good, did it? No. But it justified that it was. So when James says justified, which meaning is he using? He's actually going to be using this second one here which basically shows that someone is right. It's an acquittance. It's a vindication. It's been made evident. It's been made clear. It's been proved. It's been proved. And there's another place the same word was used, also in Luke 7. People heard these things that Jesus was saying. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, these are sort of the worst of the sinners, the tax collectors, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And when you look at the literal, if you look, there's a little footnote actually in the ESV if you go online and see the footnote or if you have a Bible that has the footnotes. I think it could actually be in, in our Bible here. But if you look at the literal Greek, they declared God just, says they justified God. I think in our English language, it was changed a little bit in the interpretation for us to understand what was being meant there. So the tax collectors justified God, meaning if you take our made righteous, you could think that it means that the tax collectors declared God righteous, forgave his sins, freed him from eternal punishment. No, they did not. They did not. What did they do? They proved him right. They vindicated him. They acknowledged that what he was saying was correct. That's what they did. So they justified God. So we need to read on. James is going to expand on this. Let's go to verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, 
Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So here's just one example of eating the pudding. (laughs) Real faith loves other people. If you have real faith, you're going to love other people. So he says here, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. That's just a really nice thing to say. Man, we do that on social media all the time, don't we? (laughs) Man, I see you're hurting. Go in peace. Be warm. Be filled. (laughs) So the Greek here actually could be either middle voice or passive voice. It works both ways. If it's middle voice, it'd be something like, just go feed yourself. Keep yourself warm. That'd be good. If it's passive, it's I hope someone feeds you. I hope someone can keep you warm. I just want to say, what good are words like that? Good intentions aren't enough. You actually have to take action to love other people. And my fear is we'll hear this message or any other message we have in here. We pat ourselves on the back. We feel a little bit of conviction. We feel the pang of, oh, I'm not quite doing enough, or it makes us even cry. And we walk out of here having felt that, and we go, wow, that message hit me really, really, really hard today. But a hard-hitting message that doesn't end in action doesn't feed a starving person. You actually have to take action on it. So the context, the first work that James starts talking about, and I don't want you to put this on a list because it'd be pretty easy to put it on a list. There's a poor, starving person, and now you're thinking, when was our last Faith Family Hospitality rotation where we housed people experiencing homelessness who were going to freeze outside or starve if we didn't bring them in? Why didn't I sign up for that? I might not be saved. That's a real tension where you do an action in order to somehow prove that you have saving faith. But remember, we're not comparing faith and works. We're not pitting them against each other. The Bible is not putting them at odds with one another. What we're saying is that living faith has works attached to it, and dead faith does not. Verse 18. But someone will say, now he's setting up a hypothetical argument. Maybe there's someone in his congregation who... He's passive-aggressively pointing out, I don't know, (laughs) someone, John over here, will say, no, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Next verse, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I ran across this week a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached in 1752. Just on this one verse, verse 19. And it was titled, True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. I should start titling our sermons like that. That was really cool. (laughs) He makes the case in his sermon, if he has some really hard language to understand, because people in the 1700s apparently wrote differently than they do now, That demons have actually been to the greatest seminary that there is. They've been in the throne room of God himself. Which means they know more facts about God than anyone else does. They have more knowledge about God than anyone else does in terms of just doctrine. 
And Edward says that they fear him, even. They respect his power. They respect it so much it makes them shudder in fear. And then he makes the case that it's very possible for a human to know that God is great, to be scared of hell, and even to alter their behavior and become very moral people. But it's all a show. And it's all just shuddering. He also makes the case that you could have all of that knowledge of God and not have the shuddering, in which case you might be in worse shape than a demon. Not that there's anything wrong with reading a text like this and experiencing the pangs of your conscience. That can be a very, very good thing. But you might be shuddering like a demon shudders. That's why he puts this in here. It's very, very strong. And we do well to pay attention to it. So there's a tension here that you could very well find yourself, 17-year-old, knowing all of the right behavior and playing the part and not actually having living faith. So there's a tension. So what is James talking about here? I ran across another sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage. And he talked about apple trees. Now, I have apple trees. One of my apple trees died a few years back, and uh, I cut it down, only to discover that the roots were very much alive because it immediately sent off a whole bunch of shoots. Now, if you know anything about apples, you know that the rootstock is a different type of apple than the trunk. Right at the ground level, there's always a graft where they put in the type of fruit that you want the apple to have. But the rootstock is something that's adapted for your particular climate and your environment and is disease resistant. So I have this amazing rootstock on this dead apple tree, but the rootstock is very much alive. But I find that if it then puts up shoots on its own, they're just a wild apple, a crab apple, and they're not necessarily the type of apple you want. So best practice is to take a branch from another tree and graft it onto that root and it will produce the right kind of fruit. And the sap will flow through that new branch and buds will start and leaves will come on it and eventually it will be a glorious tree all on its own. So I thought, why don't I experiment with this? And here's my experimentation. You see these couple of dead sticks sticking out of the ground. with some tape on them to show what type they are because I tried a few different ones because I wasn't, I wasn't very confident in my grafting skills. So I was like, I better do four of these in order to just hope that one actually takes. <laughs> so Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, a tree has been planted out in the ground. You can just picture my little tree here. <laughs> now the source of life at that tree is at the root. Whether it has apples on it or not, the apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. 
But if that tree stands in the orchard and when springtime comes, there is no bud. When the summer comes, there's no leafing and no fruit bearing. But the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit. You would say it is dead. You are correct. It is dead. But it is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is proof that it is dead. So too, it is with the professor of faith, if he has life, that life must give fruits. If not fruits, works. If his faith has a root. But if there be no works, then it would be correct to depend upon the inference that he is spiritually dead. Basically saying, if there's leaves, it's alive. If there's no leaves, it's dead. But if there's leaves, the leaves didn't make it alive. Brilliant. Love that. Makes it totally clear. And for me, two months went by And I was not confident that this plant was alive until this moment. Look at that little bit of green right on the tip. This single shoot grew seven feet in four months. It's taller than me. (laughs) I, I, I might get apples on it this year. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a gala. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. It's so good. It's so good. So good. So where did we leave off? We left off on 220. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he goes into his exhibit A, which is Abraham. Let's read that. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. So why Abraham? Here's kind of where it all comes together. James isn't, remember, he's not talking about so far, how you get saved, he's talking about how to show you're saved. And I think it works really well with Abraham. So if we're not using justification here in the salvific sense, um, it makes a whole lot of sense. And I think that the context of Scripture actually proves that out. Because what James is referring here to is this event with his son Isaac in, in Genesis chapter 22. But when Abraham was declared righteous happened decades before that in Genesis chapter 15. Where Genesis 15 says, Abraham, he believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. This is in context with the moment where God stood Abraham outside and had him look at the stars. And he said, there's going to be one who comes from your body, your own offspring. Look to the heavens and count the stars. Oh, you can't count them? That's right. There's too many for you to count. So shall your descendants be. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord. He believed that particular promise. And in his belief, that belief, that moment of faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
righteousness. Paul expands on this in Romans 4. He says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before? Remember, our chronological context matters here to understand how James is interpreting this. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, Genesis 15 is before, and Paul knows that. And so Paul says it was before. It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal, it vindicated or proved out, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So when, he, when was he justified? When he, was, when he was theologically counted as righteous? It was way before Isaac was even born. So what happened in Genesis 22, where Abraham prepared Isaac as a sacrifice? Remember, God comes to Abraham and he says, that promise, that one who is to come from your body, whose offspring are to outnumber the stars themselves, that promise, I want you to take that promise, the person of that promise, Isaac, your only son, your beloved son, and hike up this mountain and sacrifice him at the top of it. Kill him. Kill that promise. Kill that beloved son of yours, that number one thing that you care the most about. And you know there's a moment where Abraham takes his son. I'm just picturing maybe my son Emery is about the same age as Isaac was here, and I just can't even imagine walking him up a mountain. Genesis 22 humanizes this so much. Isaac and Abraham are talking back and forth, and Isaac is asking, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide it. And then Abraham takes Isaac, his beloved son, and he binds him, and he places him on the altar, and he takes a knife, and just as he's about to kill his son, God says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. I see that bud, that little leaf. I've tasted the pudding. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, for me. His faith is proven to be true. This is not the moment where he has been justified in the sense that he's been made right with God. That happened decades before this. But now God knows, I saw your action. I see that you have a root. I see that that sap is flowing through you. I see that bud forming. I see that it's true. You know, Genesis 15 is that moment where Abraham is justified by his faith. His faith is credited to him as righteousness. You know, when we read this, sometimes we're like, oh man, I'm just, ah, oh, I can't get this thing together in my life. I just wish I could overcome this particular sin or I have this bad habit or, you know, I feel this condemnation. And, you know, I think actually Abraham is very encouraging because he's featured in Hebrews 11. That's the chapter of faith, like the greatest spiritual giants of all time. He's featured there as one who believed God and had amazing faith. Genesis 15, he receives the promise. He is counted as righteous via his faith. You know, God does the thing where he splits the animals in half and walks between and he validates both sides of the covenant, right? He makes a covenant with Abraham. In the very next chapter, Abraham 
his faith falters and he realizes his wife is old and he goes, I don't know how that promise can happen. And Sarah goes, yeah, you know what? I'm old. I can't have kids. So why don't you sleep with my servant? And Abraham sleeps with Hagar, has a son named Ishmael. It's a sin. And then just a few chapters later, Abraham lies to Abimelech about who his wife is. And and Sarah ends up in the court of Abimelech and he's going to make her his wife. And then, you know, God does all kinds of stuff. Abraham lies. I mean, you just look at that, and then you look at Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring would be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And so Abraham's faith is so real, he assumes even if that knife goes into Isaac's heart, that Isaac is going to resurrect from the dead. That's God's going to keep his promise. But at the same time, Abraham's faith is wavering so much that he sleeps with his wife's servant He lies. He seems to have very weak faith, at least in terms of the evidence. And so on one hand, there's this brilliant, bright leaf. And on the other hand, it seems like maybe the works aren't awesome. And I think that's an encouragement for us. Because if you have even just a flicker of a leaf showing, a tiny little spark of faith, maybe it's just a smolder, a little tiny mustard seed of faith in God, that is enough evidence that your faith is living. I think that's so encouraging. It's so encouraging. So even though your works might be imperfectly executed, there's still validation that you have a living faith. You're going to fail. You're going to often fail badly. And like Abraham, your sort of demonstration of your faith may not happen for years, decades for him. Really, ultimately. So it's not possible, based on the chronology in Genesis, between Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 22, for salvation to have happened when Isaac was offered on the altar. That's ruled out by the context. So the justification there was that Abraham's faith was demonstrated to be real, and that's what James is talking about. Let's read the rest of this. Verse 25, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, my little graft apart from the root would die. It would not produce a seven-foot-tall apple tree. So faith apart from works is dead. And Rahab is justified in the same sense as Abraham. I don't have time to go into that story, but yet another context where someone, someone who's on the bottom level of society committing heinous sins is justified before God by her living faith. So what kind of faith do you have? Dead faith can't save you. Living faith can, but it is faith that saves you, not works. The passage doesn't contradict. It actually puts us in context with the rest of Scripture and validates it. Just one more context. This is from last week's sermon. Remember this. In James 2, 
Remember, you always have to read things in context. You can't take one verse and then prove your entire theology out of the one specific verse. And remember last week we were talking about favoritism and showing partiality to certain kinds of people. And I just wanted to point out, I loved that because ultimately God doesn't show partiality between certain kinds of people. James 2, he says, 2 verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brother, says not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. So context, poor in the world. We've been chosen as the poor in the world. You were poor, naked, and hungry in the eyes of God, and yet he made you rich, heirs, heirs to an eternal kingdom. So demons believe in God's power and holiness. They have great knowledge, but I, as an heir, have something waiting for me that they can't even begin to fathom, and that is an eternity It's waiting for me by faith, an eternity reigning and ruling alongside God, the creator of the universe, in an eternal kingdom. I'm an heir to that. I have been made rich. If you believe this, you have been made rich. You're going to inherit this kingdom that's been promised. Think about this. Wages come to those who work. That's not what he says here. An inheritance comes to you because of who you are. And if you've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ via his death on the cross, you have become an heir for all of eternity. You do not have to work for the reward of that. You're an heir. You were poor, you were naked, you were blind, and now you are an heir. Reading this passage in that context, you see James could not have meant, and now you need to add works. For those wages. It makes Romans 4 work. Paul himself, he says, the one who works, his wages aren't a gift. They're his due. But to the one who doesn't work, his faith is counted as righteousness. He quotes other things like Psalm 32. I won't get into that right now, but it's in total harmony with this passage in James, but you can't get that if you read it out of context. It's great. And just a reference to the action that James talks about here in feeding the poor, right? That is something you could add to a list. And I just want to be honest. People out in the world, non-Christians, they do that pretty well. I know some really, really loving, nice people who feed the poor. So that in of itself being put on your list won't save you. You just have to acknowledge that. What is the difference between that person and us? Just thinking about love. We recognize that we were naked and poor and hungry and that we've been made heirs. And in context with that, when you find a person who is naked and poor and hungry, It triggers something in you to remember who you were and who you've been made into, and that fuels your action. I love that. Maybe another thing, just anecdotally, I don't think the world tends to love their enemies, but we do. We do good to those who persecute us. That's evidence of faith. But I think a passage like this is so good for us. Band, you guys can come on back up. I think there's a call in this passage for each one of us. 
Maybe some in the room have what James has called dead faith. You've, been given, you've given your mind to maybe a system of belief or even a system of behaviors, but it's dead. You're withholding your heart. You're withholding committing your entire life like Abraham did. James would say to you right now, you need to confess your nakedness, your poorness to God and repent and trust Him with your life. For all of us, I think there's a call. Abraham walked up that mountain with the most beloved thing in his life that God asked him to give up. Is there something like that in your life? Is he asking you to go deeper? He's asking you to go more fully in. Are you fully convinced, like Abraham was, that it's worth it to give that up? In, in regards to Abraham, Paul's writing this, Romans 4. He says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead, Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What makes us fully convinced of that? You see God's love for you. You see God's love for you. And I actually am convinced that we have something that even Abraham didn't have access to. Now that bud coming out of that little branch is a tangible proof of life. Each one of us needed a tangible proof of God's love for us that looked like that. And God is just so brilliant and so loving. He gave us a demonstration of his love in a work that revealed it, verified it, proved his love. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners tangible action. You can taste this pudding. <laughs> Christ died for us. <laughs> this is the ultimate difference between dead faith and living faith. Does that stir your heart? Living faith sees God's love shown in the blood of Jesus Christ. It looks at Christ it sees his worth, his loveliness, the quality, the cost of that blood, that death. It was, he was absolutely worthy to pay the penalty for all of our sins. It was perfect. It was full. It was final. It was done once and for all. A just compensation for your sin. And God, for our sake, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, and maybe you find your heart softening and beating faster. That's living faith. Wow, he did that for me. There's one more clue in our text here. The thing that defines living faith. It's in verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That last part. And he was called a friend of God. Dead faith may actually be full of works, but it's going to be for what you get out of it or maybe the punishment that you want to avoid. True living faith 
wants friendship with God. And when it sees that that friendship is offered and accessible, it steps through that door. And it's just because of who God is. I just want to be friends with him. I don't really care what we do. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I just want to be with him. Are you living for that? It's my favorite part of the whole passage. I love that. I just, I just love it. <sighs> Let me just end. I, we got to end. <laughs> Genesis twenty-two, twelve. God said to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. What if you saw someone greater than Abraham walking up a mountain with his son? God himself. It's one thing I just love about the scripture. It's a picture of what was going to come. When God himself walked his beloved son Jesus up the mountain. Only Abraham didn't actually have to sacrifice his son Isaac and God sacrificed his son Jesus. He went through with it. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not withhold his son, now we know God loves us, he did not withhold his son. Living faith looks at that and goes, wow. Now I see God loves me. (laughs) He said it, but now he's justified. That statement backed up with his deeds. He didn't withhold his only son from us so that we who were enemies could be brought near as friends of God. All that really matters is being near to the one who went to the cross for me. Why don't you stand up? We're going to sing, In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, on his shoulders brought me to his fold again. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. He died for me while I was sinning. I was weary. I was poor. I was blind. He whispered to assure me, I found thee. Thou art mine. I've never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. Let's sing this together and let our aching hearts rejoice in what God was willing to do for us. To step through that door, to recognize the righteousness of Christ has been given to me, and now I have full access to become a friend of God for all of time. And that will change me. It will produce good works. But those works don't save me. They're the fruit of that life flowing into me who was dead and now is connected back with the vine and is alive again.